So that was a long hiatus between the previous class and this one. We had Passover in the interim. And I'm happy to resume with everybody. I must say, it's, it's a daunting task to try to, uh, as you know, not a professional historian or scholar, to try to wrap my mind, keep wrapping my mind around this, reading and reading and reading. And so I want to humbly say that I'll just keep doing my best to structure this information in ways that are uh, related to reality and helpful for people to build your own uh, understanding of the subject. So, I think where we left off last time was that we had identified a whole variety of Jewish responses in 19th century Europe to the uh, uh, challenge that Jews faced um, in uh, the uh, uh, emancipation from the ghetto and their uh, integration, more and less successful, into the life of a national, uh, a liberalizing, changing Europe of the 19th century. And we identified all these different ways that what was a fractured Jewish identity, uh, uh, a fragmented one, how different ways that the Jewish, uh, that, that Jews in Europe tried to uh, uh, adapt to that and reinvent themselves as Jews in a modern context. I'm not going to go over that again. I think we covered it, and I don't want to, uh, I don't want to, repeat and repeat uh, what we've um, done before. So, where we left was coming to the point of, of describing what the Jewish problem was. The fact that it was even called a Jewish problem, meaning that the Jews were a problem, gives you a sense of how intractable it was. I want to today look at the difference uh, between Western Europe, Central Europe, and Eastern Europe in how, uh, in, in how the Jewish problem presented itself, and now, in this, in this class, look at specifically at the solution proposed by the Zionists. Uh, the Zionists were Jews who decided that in a world of nation-states, and especially in a world of nation-states that uh, uh, were, appeared to never be fully willing to embrace the Jews of that nation-state as, as really true citizens of that place. The Zionist proposal was that here in the, uh, in the, at this moment, the Jews have to join the family of nations in order to solve the Jewish problem. If they didn't, they would forever be a people apart, right? And would never gain full acceptance in the societies in which they were trying to become full integrated members of. Uh, so I think where we left off last time was that in Eastern Europe, uh, well, let's see. Let's not go exactly chronologically. Uh, let's look at Western Europe 
uh, first. In a place like France, which, thanks to the French Revolution, was the beacon of liberalism, liberté, égalité, fraternité, uh, there was a relatively small Jewish population, and they, um, they, as well as the Jews of Central Europe, had launched into the middle and professional classes. Right? The, the Jews in France, or in Germany, or in Vienna, or in Hungary, uh, were, uh, as, were so prominent in finance, law, medical professions, the arts, intellectual life. It was an astonishing transformation in the space of one or two generations for many, many Jews who made themselves firmly kind of almost the engine of liberal uh, uh, civilization in those countries. <coughs> along with that liberalization, along with that and headlong entry of the Jews and the sciences, I mentioned the sciences as well, that headlong entry of the Jews into, into the intellectual, financial, cultural lives of these countries, uh, they, in, they re, the, Jew, the Jews by and large in these situations rejected completely the superstitious, clannish religiosity of their parents and grandparents, right? This was, a, this was an assimilating wave. Assimilate, I was just noticing in a book, means to become similar to. <laughs> That's where the word comes from, to assimilate, is to become similar to. Uh, however, uh, starting in the mid to late 19th century, there was a backlash against this assimilating way. The backlash was sewn in to the uh, nature of nation states, which is that you might say a nation state is a new form of tribe. Right? It's, an, it, it's not a form of tribe based on birth relationships. It's a new form of tribe based on essentially an invented set of um, characteristics that anyone who shares those characteristics is part of this new, much larger national tribe. Uh, and I think we discussed aspects of, that, uh, of this new, new idea included language, uh, a shared language, a shared canon of sacred literature, a shared set of ancient heroes and myths, uh, and uh, uh, a shared homeland, whether it was a motherland or a fatherland, a shared homeland. Also, um, a as I mentioned, a literary canon that was replacing, essentially, the Bible in a certain way as what made you part of this new national tribe. So to participate, you had to pay Obeisance, you had to be part of this. And the Jews of, of Western and Central Europe did this with a um, ferocity of energy. Um, uh, I was reading some excerpts of uh, 
of uh, assimilating professional Jews from this period who wrote about how what their what their parents' bookshelf looked like compared to their own, you know, um, and. Um, The, but the, the um, inherent contradiction of this new, these new tribes was that in order to define yourself as a tribe, I guess we could say, um, then you have to be your, your own special thing so that everyone else is less special than you. Right? That's how we humans organize ourselves, by teams. Right? I was the giant challenge of the, modern, of the modern era, and now especially of this 21st century, is whether we'll be able to identify, enough of us will be able to identify ourselves as being members of several teams, concentric circles, as it were, that overlap, so that, uh, and this is, so that we can also acknowledge that we're members of both the team of the human race and also the team of the global ecosystem. Right, it's completely unclear whether we're capable of that, yeah. even though great efforts are being made by many, many well-meaning people. It's, there's much backlash against that as well. As well. So that's, that's this incredible challenge we human beings face based on what our apparent human nature is uh, and can we conceptualize. Since a nation state is already an abstract team, right? It's, it's not based on blood. Uh, but on something much vaguer than that, maybe we can do it. I hope so. It's certainly my goal as a Jew to affirm the Jewish team I'm in and then every concentric circle out be, extending beyond that that I'm in and to do it all at the same time. Uh, that is a giant challenge, right? Because it's filled with contradictions as well. What's my self-interest? Right? How do I define my self-interest as perhaps extending to the entire planet. That's an abstract, a very abstract challenge, isn't it? Uh, we have to educate for it now, I think. I think that's a giant, a, a, a giant assignment we have now. So inherent in a nation state is a sense of exclusivity. Uh, in its best sense, that exclusivity could stand for a mission to bring the light of liberty, egality, and fraternity to the world, right? In its most con sort of um, uh, uh, reductive way, it could be to indicate that we are the superior race and that all other race, all other nation states must be subjugated before us, right? It can go either way, but you have a sense of mission, a sense of specialness, I was given a book by uh, uh, David Becker, who's a member of the congregation, which I'll recommend, it's very dense, <laughs> called The Jewish Century by, um, uh, I'll bring it in next time. And it won the National Jewish Book Award in uh, about three or four years ago, uh, which, which essentially posits that in the 19th century, uh, uh, each of these nation states took on a sense of chosenness and mission. Uh, and the Jews who had been uh, resigned you know, to this restrictive little area and had been then permitted into these societies now watched as 
they were excluded from these new chosen societies. It's a very interesting thesis, and the book's brilliant. I'll never be able to do it justice, but I had a lot of fun reading so far. Uh, so, as the Jews become more and more central to these European nations' cultures and civil systems and political systems, um, and more and more less distinguishable from the general population, there is a backlash against them uh, in, in these nations uh, that starts to uh, blame them in a new, a new iteration of uh, how anti-Semitism works, blame them for the nation's problems. And that blaming has been expressed, uh, here I'll read something that Moshe Lillianblum wrote. Uh, the opponents of nationalism see us as uncompromising nationalists with a nationalist God and a nationalist Torah. The nationalists see us as cosmopolitans whose homeland is wherever we happen to be well off. Religious Gentiles say that we are devoid of any faith and free thinkers among them say that we are orthodox and believe in all kinds of nonsense. The liberals say that we are conservative and the conservatives call us liberal. Some bureaucrats and writers see us as the root of anarchy, insurrection, and revolt. And the anarchists say we are capitalist, uh, uh, bearers of biblical civilization, which is, in their view, based on slavery and parasitism. Officialdom accuses us of circumventing the laws of the land. That is, of course, the laws directly, specifically against us. Musicians like Richard Wagner charge us with destroying the beauty and purity of music. Even our merits are turned into shortcomings. Quote, few Jews are murderers, they say, because the Jews are cowards. This, however, does not prevent them from accusing us of murdering Christian children. This was a guy named Moshe Lieb Lillianblum writing in 1883. Uh, and uh, you'll find many other writings of early Zionist thinkers repeating these same kinds of sentiments. That, uh, uh, what Lillianblum said was, there are three paths open to us. To remain in our present state, to be gypsies, to face the prospect of various pogroms and not be safe even against a major holocaust. He's writing in Odessa, in Russia, even though I was talking about Western Europe. To assimilate, not merely externally, but completely within the nations among whom we dwell. To forsake Judaism for the religions of the Gentiles, but nonetheless to be despised for many, many years until some far-off day when descendants of ours who no longer retain any trace of their Jewish origin will be entirely assimilated among the Aryans. Or three, to initiate our efforts for the renaissance of Israel in the land of its forefathers, where the next few generations may attain to the fullest extent a normal national life. We're going to talk more about, about that. But this was an early, early conclusion, 1883, of someone who was not even referred to as a Zionist at that point, but as Chibatzion, a lover of Zion. Uh, so, uh, in 18, around this time, 1883 and 1879, there was a man named Wilhelm Marr in Germany who published a series of pamphlets. And this shows the dark underbelly of tribal nationalism, which then becomes romanticized as something essential to our nature, 
like something, ir- something, something irreducible about what makes you a Frenchman or a German or a Hungarian. And it was called the victory of the Jewish spirit over the German spirit, observed from a non-religious perspective. Uh, he now posited that there was something called a German spirit, Germanness, Jewishness. And in the way people want to make, uh, uh, want, to, want to make life simple and have the good guys and the bad guys, the good guys are the Aryans and what they stand for, and the Jews are irreducibly corrupting. Uh, the next year, he wrote another pamphlet called The Weight of the Victory of the Germanic Spirit over the Jewish Spirit. Uh, and in this one, this is 1880, we find the first use of the word anti-Semitism. Modern, modern word. Semitism meaning that there's a difference between the Aryan race and the Semite race. And because this was Eurocentric, uh, they, he wasn't talking about any Semitic peoples as we would think of them today from the Middle East. He was talking about the Jews. Okay? And he coined a term called anti-Semitismus. And it was an irreducible racial characteristic. It makes sense, everybody? Uh, if it's an irreducible racial characteristic, then no matter how well integrated into the society the Jews of that society have become, they were never going to be truly anything but their essential Semitic nature. Um, his, uh, at the beginning, he was a laughingstock, right, by, from the liberal world, just like we might laugh at some of the cockamamie conspiracy theories that are uh, uh, proposed over the airwaves today until we find them creeping into the center of the political establishment, right? And that's what happened rather quickly with his work, yes? Who was this fellow? Was he a professor? He was, a, he was actually a public intellectual. He, I, read his, I read about him uh, uh, when I was looking this up, uh, who had early in his life uh, been a communist and then moved into this romantic nationalism. At the end of his life, he recanted all of his racist views, having said, quote, having rejected the miserable romantic madness of Germanism, and the merging of modern anti-Semitism with German mysticism and nationalism. So he was an interesting fella, but the damage had been done, right? He, like he, lit, the, he, he lit the match. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His name again? Wilhelm Marr, M-A-R-R. And what was, what was the, when did he die? The one he died in like 1910. Was uh, Germany? Yeah, he was German, but he spent many years living... Um, somewhere else, and then he came back. You, the Wikipedia article seemed very worthwhile to get a sense of who he was. Um, and he wasn't like, he wasn't a big shot, he went, but I'm just saying, I'm using him because that's the first time that anti, anti-Semitism became a, a you know, coined term. And it meant something different than, and that's an important thing to understand, even though we retroject the term anti-Semitism, 
to cover 2,000 years of Jewish oppression, it might be more accurate for us to understand that the oppression of the Jews enters a new phase when the term anti-Semitism becomes current. Because now there is something called an Aryan race. And there's something called a Jewish race. And this is a whole new ballgame. With the exception of things like the Inquisition and other notable exceptions, prior to the modern era, Jews could escape their fate by converting to Christianity. Right? Although we see the uh, beginnings of this idea of racial uh, definitions of people in the Inquisition, in the Spanish Inquisition. That wasn't true everywhere, and in general, it was possible to escape your fate as a Jew. Now it becomes impossible. And this is what becomes clear to some of the Jews trying to solve their, this, their Jewish problem in Europe. Every effort they had made to, to contribute to the society to study Goethe, or, uh, you know, um, uh, if you were in England, to become a Shakespeare scholar, or to, to become a, you know, to master the cultural canon of wherever you were, was starting to, it, it was starting, starting to look like, though only to a minority, because many, many liberals had such, uh, and I, I'm using the word liberals, uh, I think it's a useful way to talk about Many, many liberalizing Jews who had entered headlong and successfully into their societies considered it to be a retrogressive tendency that was going to be left behind in the wake of human progress. Right? Uh, were I in that position? I might have felt exactly the same way. I might have thought the Zionists, the early Zionists were saying, it ain't going to work, everybody. We've got to get out of here. Uh, we're nuts. It's like, get out of here. Look at this. What a magnificent, you know, look, I'm in Budapest. I'm in Vienna. I'm in Berlin. It's incredible. Look how many Jewish bankers and lawyers and cultural writers. And it's like, what are you talking about? Uh, but this wave of romantic, mystical, racist nationalism began to to gain more and more traction. Does that make sense, everybody? So just in yeah. contrast, what was the thinking during pogroms? Like well, there were no pogroms in Central and Western Europe. Right. So now, let's turn our attention to what's going on in the Russian Empire at the same time, uh, where the Tsar is completely opposed to these liberalizing influences, even though they're making their way into, his, uh, into Russian culture. Uh, and the Jews are despised, ex much more numerous than in Western Europe, restricted to, mostly to what's known as the Jewish Pale of Settlement, which is an area of uh, Western Russia, Ukraine, Poland, uh, the Baltics, where, the, where most of the Jews live, and uh, where they're only making the tiniest bit of progress there. But they're making some progress, uh, and some Jews have started to, uh, Russian nationalism is, is also growing, and some Jews uh, have been able to, um, in the mid-1800s mid to late-1800s, um, get secular educations, move to one particular place, which was Odessa. 
Odessa was like an incredibly free city. Built, it didn't, it was, it was created, what, in the early 19th century, I think. It was a new city. And it was a place where Jews could go. And um, here's what happened for the Jewish community, the Jews who moved to Odessa. At this time, in Eastern Europe especially, but also in Central Europe, more in Eastern Europe, there was a, a revival of Hebrew as a literary language. So, even before any full-blown Jewish nationalism, which gets known as Zionism, emerges at the very end of the 19th century, Jews naturally are reinventing themselves, as we have always done, in the, in the image of the larger cultural and societal trends that are going on. So if Russia, if Russian is being elevated as a literary language, and there's going to be a Russian literary canon, and if Hungarian literature, Hungarian is being uh, uh, reborn as a literary language, and German and uh, Polish, uh, uh, even, uh, even Lithuanian, um, then surely the Jews want, who are part of these modernizing trends want to do the same. And so there's a revival of Hebrew that begins, called the Haskalah, which is Hebrew for the Enlightenment. Um, and Hebrew essays and literature and journals are created. And so the, the foundation of a modern Hebrew is, it begins in very small ways. These are very small trends. But when you study the history in hindsight, you see the seeds of what's going to come later. So where, where, was that in Odessa? Especially. Especially. But the people who were in Odessa were like a, an island of Western Europe and Central Europe in Russia. And so, for instance, uh, some, this guy who I mentioned, Moshe Lilienblum, he was in Odessa. He moved to Vienna and spent the rest of his life writing in Vienna. So there were, you know, there were trains. There were, this, was the, this was the late 1800s. Uh, uh, but the situation for Jews in Eastern Europe is much more dire because their lives are at stake. Jews are not being slaughtered in Central and Western Europe in the late 19th century. But in Eastern Europe, starting in 1881, especially after decades of um, fomenting hatred against the Jews from official channels, uh, uh, a series of pogroms are unleashed that I think we discussed in the last class that were horrific. This is 1881. If you want to track when the Jews of Eastern Europe started to come to the United States en masse, 1881 because these were horrific, violent pogroms, compounded with the poverty and the restrictions on Jewish movement and freedom of travel and all, everything else, uh, professional advancement. All the other ways the Jews were being squeezed in a vice there. Uh, millions of Jews, known as Ostjuden, Eastern European Jews, started coming to the West, to Argentina, to France, to England, to Germany, to the United States. The westernized Jews, who were already in these countries, were horrified by the appearance of what would become millions of Eastern European Yiddish-speaking Jews. 
these were the, remember the Western European Jews were the ones who had done everything in their power to become full members of assimilated secular of their societies. And uh, there's a lot of, you know, uh, you remember that book, um, was it called Our Crowd? By Stephen Birmingham decades ago. Uh, talking about the up, uptown Jews who were all Germans who had come to the Manhattan in the 1850s and 40s. This was the Gimbals and the Strausses and the, uh, the Morgenthaus and the, you know, like these, these were the German Jews. They created the settlement houses not just out of the goodness of their heart for the Eastern European Jews, but so they could clean them up and make them into Americans quick. You know, so because the Eastern European Jews represented in the West, Central and Western European mind um, everything that was bad about the Jews. Unwashed, babbling in a foreign tongue, superstitious uh, um, uh, hucksters and uh, peddlers and like every stereotype you can imagine. Uh, so it was in 1881 that the Jews started streaming out of Russia. A very small minority of these intellectual thinkers, uh, as Max Lillienbloom that I was reading before, um, uh, another one, Peret Smolenskin, another one named um, uh, Dr. Yudalei uh, uh, Pinsker, um, started writing pamphlets and journals about how there's only going to be one solution to the Jewish problem. And again, I want to repeat, since it had been identified, the whole problem in Europe, as the Jewish problem, it meant that the Jews were the problem. So uh, the Jews were constantly trying to solve themselves. Uh, and uh, uh, that is, as we discussed, an aspect of what it means to be an oppressed people, to, think, to take the blame for everything that's happening to you, and then to internalize it and say, how do we solve us, right? Uh, yes. So what was the rationale that you said that the, if the official Russian um, monarchy, whatever, promoted anti the pogroms or anti-Semitism? But what was their like? It wasn't that, that kind of nationalism. But what were they saying? Can anyone answer that question for me? Why? Why was the czar so? Why did the czar crack down on the Jews in in that time? Arnie, do you have an insight? Because the, the social conditions in Russia were so bad, that's he, right. he was pure scapegoating. That's, that's right. right. It was pure, thank you. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, his grip on power required him to have a way to let the millions and millions of impoverished serfs, peasants, uh, to have a place to put their 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 blame. Their their yes. Was the czar also afraid of the import of Western ideas of liberalism? I think that's true. I think the Tsar was also trying to resist the import of the Western ideas of liberalism, which the Jews represented. Mm -hmm. Thank you. But not the Shtetl Jews, nonetheless. Nonetheless, Europe was a connected place, and uh, the fact that the fact that that Jews represented a huge part of the Central European banking establishment. Uh, intellectual establishment. I mean, the Jews were a potent middle and upper middle class and then even upper class group. Yeah, yeah. No, that didn't matter about the, the poor shtetl dwellers. That's right. Uh, so, 
in Odessa, a little movement was formed called Chibat Zion. Chibat Zion means lovers of Zion, who started promoting, uh, actively moving to Palestine. The, the, the first, this is known in Zionist history as the first Aliyah. Aliyah means going up to the land because in, um, in, in Judaism, in Jewish culture, everything outside of Israel is a descent from the Promised Land, and everything in Israel itself is about going up. So it's called Aliyah. And the first Aliyah started in 1881 and, uh, and was not a particularly progressive or uh, coherent movement. It was tiny, but the proponents of it went to the great Jewish financiers who were interested in the, in the well-being of all these impoverished Jewish peasants, uh, the Baron de Hirsch, uh, the Montefiores, the Rothschilds a little bit, and uh, to, in order to secure funds for them to pay uh, for purchases of land for Jews who were going to go back to the land of Israel. And it's so funny, I'm so, you know, Zionism is so much a part of my worldview that I say back, even though they hadn't been back there in a long, long time. But that's the perspective, right? Uh, these, so uh, some early, early farming villages were founded. Rishon Letzion, Petach Tikva, Chadera, Zichron Yaakov. These were a few, little play, a few little farming villages where, using the land from these financiers, land was purchased and a trickle of people, all from Eastern Europe, went there trying to escape their circumstances, motivated to a certain degree by this ideology that the only solution was to leave Europe and reestablish ourselves. Uh, they would, um, the land that would be purchased, uh, again, this was before the kibbutz movement. It was before labor Zionism and socialism animated the entire Zionist enterprise. So they would buy land. From who? Ah, so what was Palestine at this time? Palestine was part of a province of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was centered in Constantinople, in Istanbul, um, and had been uh, uh, in control of the Middle East for since the 1400s. Uh, and now it's the 1800s. Um, the Ottoman Empire is uh, losing ground in the 19th century, right? Greece, where I just visited, um, declared its independence from the Ottoman Empire and fought for its independence in 1830. Uh, different chunks of the Ottoman Empire were succumbing, or succumbing is not the right word, were um, getting on the bandwagon of modern nationalism and declaring their independence from this, uh, what was considered to be sclerotic, you know, um, uh, empire that was crumbling. Uh, wars were being fought all over the place, Crimea. You know, the, the Ottoman Empire was losing a lot of ground. Um, meanwhile, uh, Syria-Palestine, which was one of their administrative regions, uh, was um, 
based on contemporaneous accounts, whether it's Mark Twain or many other travelers, was an underdeveloped, disease-ridden malaria. We're going to talk about malaria in another class uh, because um, there's some very interesting stuff coming to light about just how malarial uh, the land of Palestine had become. Once a, how does malaria take place? When there's standing water where malarial mosquitoes can um, uh, breed. How did all these swamps get to be in the land of Israel? And there were a lot of them. And not just major swamps, but backwaters everywhere. Through centuries of neglect. It, no infrastructure. Right? No, no... Um, and anyway, uh, uh, so there was, there was, and we're going to talk about it, uh, there were residents of Syria-Palestine. They did not yet identify as a national movement in Palestine. That would come later, but they lived there, right? Uh, and, but, the, but the landowners generally were absentee landowners who lived in larger cities like Damascus or in, the, or in, the, uh, in, in, the, um, in Istanbul or in other parts of the region, in Lebanon. And so you could purchase land from them. That didn't actually alter the situation of the uh, Palestinian Arab peasants at the time because they weren't landowners to begin with. And the Jewish landowners hired them to keep working the land that had been purchased from uh, the uh, absentee landlords. Does that make sense? So at this point, what's going on is not a dramatic creation of a new Jew, which we're going to talk about today, uh, but Jews trying to solve their, pro their, 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 in their unsolvable status by going back to their ancestral homeland where they could be self-determining. But the, the full-blown ideology of Zionism is just in the making here. Many of the Jews who go there find life there to be so miserable that they come back. Many who go there adopt the ways of the local Arab population. You see the pictures of them with their fezes, riding their horses with their rifles across their legs, right? Um, but this is called the first Aliyah, and it's the beginning of the resettlement of the land of Israel by European Jews. Um, those cities, Zichron, Yaakov, Rishon, Lezion, they're now, they're all still there, and they're all, they're all substantial suburbs of Tel Aviv or self, you know, nice, beautiful communities with old stone houses and their old sections and all that sort of thing. Um, so I think I'll, no, we'll get to Achat Ha'am later. Uh, so that's happening in Eastern Europe. And it's, an, it's a nascent movement of Jews who say the only way in the wake of this re reactionary pogroms that we're experiencing, the way that we're being scapegoated by the czar and being the target of all of this is, yeah, one choice is to go to America. Uh, but we want to do something different because we don't think the Jewish problem will be solved until we are 
have recreated ourselves as a nation, as a people, in our own ancestral homeland, as a nation state. Uh, 1896, we now turn our attention back to the Western Europe scene, and this guy, Theodor Herzl. Theodor Herzl was born in Budapest in 1860 and was an was a almost quintessential product of Central European liberalizing Judaism, right? His family moved to Vienna. Uh, he grew up there. He became, he went to law, university and law school. He left all of his traditional, his family left all their traditional Jewish ways behind. He spoke French and German, was a well-known journalist and essayist in Europe, writing in French and German, and in also a playwright, and uh, considered to, you know, and in 1891, he was sent by the Neue Presse, the big newspaper in Vienna, which, uh, to Paris, to be their Paris correspondent. While he's in Paris, he observes that there's this rising tide of the welcome mat being basically dragged inside the door from the Jews of France, who, and this is in the land of liberalism, right? The vision of French nationhood is a vision of a liberal nation, liberty for all, right? Uh, and his observations, it, it, he didn't, what, in the, in the headlines of the story we tell about Dreyfus, he was, about Herzl, he was covering the trial of Alfred Dreyfus. Alfred Dreyfus was a French Jew who had risen up into being one of the, the ranks of the French army, a, a war hero, impeccably French. And yet he was framed in 1896 as a Jew for crimes he did not commit, and it was tearing France apart. Uh, that a Jew, a good, uh, that this French Jew, who had done everything right, everything right French-wise, could now be sent to uh, what was that horrible prison? Devil's Island, Devil's Island. Uh, uh, stripped of his rank for crimes he did not commit. As Herzl covered this, he, it, he had essentially. Uh, uh, a life-changing experience, and wrote in the space of a short amount of time a pamphlet called The Jewish State, Der um, Judenstadt, uh, which laid out very clearly, in a very programmatic way, all the reasons why there was no future for Jews in Europe, mm. despite every countervailing feeling one might have, uh, and that the solution to the Jewish problem would be us to become a nation among the family of nations. His thinking had already been written. This was not, what he was saying was not new. It had first been written in the 1860s, then a lot in the 1880s and 1890s by these um, by the Chibat Zion movement in uh, Eastern Europe, in Odessa, but who were also living in Vienna at the time, right? Remember, 
there was a lot of discourse here. So it wasn't the originality of his ideas that galvanized for the first time Zionism into the public eye. Uh, it was something else about Herzl. Uh, you could say that he, was an, he understood public relations. He was a man of his times. He was a master journalist. He was a uh, cultural, um, a cultural uh, critic. He was all of these things, and he understood something about that that made Der Judenstadt into a bestseller. So what did Herzl do? He um, decided, basically, he had no money, he had no backing, he had no official position. Right? He had no state support. He was a, he was a remarkable figure because what he did was he called for a first world Zionist Congress to be held in Basel, Switzerland. And as they assembled 200 delegates from all over Europe, he insists he had press coverage. He had pomp and circumstances. He wore his tails and his incredible hat and his beautiful beard. And he was like, he looked like a prophetic biblical figure, you might imagine. He was very striking. And he insisted that everyone who came to the Congress also dress accordingly with the gloves and the canes and the everything. And um, this, and he put for the first time this idea into world consciousness. Um, and so the first Zionist Congress was a turning point. And his pamphlets were a turning point. And furthermore, he took it upon himself to arrange with tireless energy visits with the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, an audience. How did he arrange it? He writes about it. It was a lot of bakshish, a lot of, uh, you have to bribe your way in into the, what was that called, the Topkapi? What was that, what was the centerpiece of the? Topkapi was the palace. The palace, yeah, and through all the ante rooms. And there he arrives, representing the Jewish people. He infuriated a lot of people. Yes, Bob. Okay. Without any of the communication tools we have, how did he get people to attend? And what did we have? come from many different countries. Yeah. What did we have in Europe in 1896? We had telegraphs. We had newspapers. We had letters. So everything took longer, and there were trains. Trains everywhere. So it wasn't so hard. It just took longer to organize things. Remember that, Any everybody? Idea <laughs> um, uh, I don't remember how many countries were represented, but there was representatives from Eastern and from Western Europe. And it's that contrast that I'm going to talk about because they had very different ideas about how to proceed. Um, uh, so in the wake of... Someone will get that. In the wake of the, the, um, the, the uh, first Zionist Congress, he started visiting heads of state. He visited the Prime Minister of England. He visited Kaiser Wilhelm. He visited, uh, as I said, the Sultan. He visited, um, let's see, there's another big shot he, he, he managed to get an audience with. 
And as I said, this was all, uh, there was no, there was nothing behind it. <laughs> it was all PR. It was an incredible effort. And in the process, he made this new movement called Zionism legitimate and part of the discourse of the general intelligentsia around Europe and the United States. Uh, and he did this all in the space of seven years. Um, he worked himself to death. He may have been, he may have had a mental health diagnosis, you know, as a... Um, Manic, <laughs> narcissist maybe. His family story, his wife and his kids have a, hard, a lot of mental illness in his family, but we're not here to psychoanalyze in this particular class. But it's a fascinating story. Uh, he died of heart failure at the age of 44. Um, yeah, in 1904. But in that time, he was the cal catalyst. You know how it's... History is a funny thing. Who the person is, if at that time, with those at that moment. Uh, I saw a hand. Yeah. yeah. I just wanted to say also, he grew up in Vienna, right? He grew up in so Vienna. He was the Jew that was already educated a certain way with the, with the Western ideas. Mm -hmm. That probably helped also to have that. He was completely a European. Right? He was a Euro cosmopolitan he, European. He probably felt entitled to have a national movement because he saw the other people like himself. He didn't feel like the shtetl Jew that was like under everybody. That's right. He felt entitled as well. Right. Like, sort mm -hmm. of like we do in America, right? Well, I would say in <laughs> general, and we're going to, I think we'll, we'll, we'll allude to this more. Nationalist movements arose among the entitled classes. So in Arab nationalism, which is starting to happen in late 19th century also, is emerging amongst the city dwellers, the educated, the ones who speak French, you know, uh, or North Africa. Because if you're repressed, you can't think like a free person. Well, this is mm -hmm. the story of Passover, right? You That's right. When you're, if, you're, if you haven't got the education, if you're not literate, if you're not worldly, if you don't think this can be mine. So one of the ironies of European nationalism and colonialism is that the places where Europe was colon, co co colonialist, the colonies of various European nations, their nationalist movements emerged precisely because Europe brought their education systems and their value systems to those countries who eventually rebelled against Europe. And we'll find the same thing to be true in Israel-Palestine. A Palestinian national movement will emerge as they gain access to uh, literacy and to uh, and watch what these Jews who've come in are doing and why, say, we want that too. That's why monarchs always repress their people. That's why monarchs repress their people, that's right. And that's, it's, it's better that they shouldn't read, it's better that they shouldn't know, it's better that you should be able to control the flow of information or, or, non, or, or propaganda that they have access to, all of that, that's correct. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's, a, it's an important way to contextualize what's going on here. Oh. I don't know if you said this already and I just spaced mm -hmm. out. But if you didn't, what is um what was just quickly, what was the original impetus for the nationalism itself? I don't mean just in general. Oh for nationalism itself. Yeah, what was that? The Enlightenment. Oh. The idea that 
that human beings are endowed with unalienable rights, and that monarchies need to that that monarchies need to be replaced, and that the church especially loses its legitimacy in the face of reason and so, science. So it was an answer to not being subject to those. Yes, days. yes. So starting in the starting in this in the seventeen hundreds and the earlier with the emergence of uh, the age of reason. So then they begin. We're going to govern ourselves, and how can we do that? So the nation state became. Nation states became the, the 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 that became the solution. The new organizational principle. That's right. Um, it happened. It it didn't happen everywhere at once. Uh, we know that you know. Right into the 1960s and 1970s in Africa, uh, national movements were emerging and nationalist movements continue to emerge. You could say that the Palestinian national movement really becomes a movement in the 1960s. Um, and uh, uh, so it didn't happen all at once. One of, the questions, one of the questions that I have, just which I can't answer, is the history is not a clean, like, now we're in this era. And at this point, even though we like to talk about it, now we're entering this era. Everything is bubbling up and overlapping. And, you know, the emergence of the European, the common market, and then the European Union uh, uh, after the Second World War and, into the, and then starting in the 1980s is an effort led by Germany to transcend nationalism with a new kind of identity because specifically West Germany was trying to ensure that it wouldn't go mad again and do what was the ultimate um, uh, disgrace of nationalism, right? Uh, and now the European Union is in a, a battle for its own soul, just as the United States is and everywhere. We don't know what's next. We, don't, we can only tell these stories afterwards when we look back. Um, so we just do our best to be on the side of the forces that we feel are the... The, 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 the historical trends that we feel we want to be the part of. And then we'll, we find out, somebody later writes our story. Yeah. Um, so, so Herzl's astonishing that way. In 1902, he writes a um, utopian novel called Altneuland, Old New Land. In fact, the city Tel Aviv founded in 1909, is a Hebrew translation of Altneuland. Um, Altneuland is it's, it's a, it's a utopian novel that pictures, in the 1903, he wrote it in 1903, pictures the enlightened republic that has emerged in 1923 in the land of Israel. And it's essentially a social democratic paradise where um, uh, uh, it, it's fascinating to read about it. I encourage you, you, know, you don't have to read the whole book, but you could go read like a summary of, of Herzl's vision in Altenoyland. Tel Aviv, which is the first Hebrew-speaking Jewish city founded in thousands of, well over 2,000 years in 1909, takes its name Tel, Tel means hill, and Aviv means spring. But a tell is not just a hill. A tell in Israel is an archaeological mound in Hebrew and Arabic. So that's the old. And Aviv, springtime, is the new. And so they were doing a, a kind of a, 
literary take on Her- the title of Herzl's German novel. But Herzl, in this novel, imagines that, what he, that the language spoken in this enlightened republic is French and German. Okay. He imagines... He, because Herzl was not connected in his self. Did he even know Hebrew? No. And why would he? Yeah. Exactly. Why would he? His parents probably spoke Yiddish, but they were raising their son for uh, much better things. Like, remember, this, this was an opportunity to become something. Think about our parents and grandparents and the assimilating pressure we had to become really good Americans. That's what immigrants do. And certainly in a society where you've been in a, in, in a uh, oppressed capacity and the opportunity opens up for your kid to go to university, what are you going to do? Right? It's, it's not, this is not so hard to put ourselves in those shoes. City College, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. Wow, think of the generation of Jews that what their parents did and what they did after City College. It's amazing and similar story in, in the uh, late 19th century. So, her, yes? They have a wall there of Nobel Prize winners. At City College. Yes. Yes. And I, I forget the percentage of, that were Jews, but way more than our... Right, well, the, we know that, uh, I mean, just at City College now serves a whole other immigrant population. City College was a Jewish place. Right? That's just what it was. Um, and uh, it's an amazing story, isn't it? Arnie? No, it was a joke when I was a kid. CCNY, City College, was a Jewish But we knew that the real meaning of CCNY was Christian College, now Yiddish. <laughs> so did, did you hear that joke? CCNY stood for Christian College, now Yiddish. That's right. That's right. And now new waves of immigrants are, are, are there. Um, but so Herzl, even though he saw the political problem and wanted to solve it, he created what was known as political Zionism in its early incarnation as opposed to cultural or spiritual Zionism. Because that's what he knew. And he went to heads of state, and he put Zionism on the map as a political movement. Let me read to you uh, the, uh, the achievements of the first Zionist Congress. It was called the Basel Program. And it stated... Zionism seeks to establish a home for the Jewish people in Palestine secured among public law, meaning having, having international recognition. 1897. Um, and it was called the Basel Program. Uh, uh, the program sets out the goals of the Zionist movement. Zionism aims at establishing for the Jewish people a publicly and legally assured home in Palestine. For the attainment of this purpose, the Congress considers the following means serviceable. One, the promotion of the settlement of Jewish agriculturists, artisans, and tradesmen in Palestine. Two, 
the federation of all Jews into local or general groups, according to the laws of the various countries, Zionist groups. Three, the strengthening of the Jewish feeling and consciousness. And that didn't come from Herzl. That came from the Eastern European delegates. This was a, this was a compromise platform. Four, preparatory steps for the attainment of those governmental grants which are necessary to the achievement of the Zionist purpose. That was the Basel program, 1897. Achievements. The first Zionist Congress is credited for the following achievements. Uh, the formulation of that platform, the foundation of the World Zionist Organization, which still exists and has Congresses every four years. The adoption of Hatikva as the World Zionist Organization's national anthem. Are you familiar with what Hatikva is? Should I clarify that? It's the Jewish national, it's the Israeli's national anthem, which is a poem by uh, Naftali Hertz Imber um, that says, Kolod Balevav Pnima, as long as the Jewish heart uh, and the Nefesh Yehudi Homiyah, as long as there beats a Jewish heart, there is a longing mm-hmm. in the Jewish soul. Our eyes turn towards Zion in the East. We have not lost our hope of 2,000 years to be a free people once again in our own land. And that's the Hatikva. Um, So the adoption of Hatikva as its anthem the absorption of most of the previous Chovavetzion societies, the early lovers of Zion societies in Eastern Europe, became part of this new, larger movement. The suggestion for the establishment of a people's bank. The people's bank would become the Jewish National Fund. Because one of the, one of the positions that, that became clear in the next Zionist Congress was that rather than have individual Jews purchasing land as the first Aliyah had done. This was going to be a national effort, not an individual effort. And all land purchased by the Jewish National Fund would belong to the Jewish people. And anyone who wanted to work on this land would lease it from the Jewish National Fund. Does that make sense, everybody? Uh, Yes. Today is Theodore Herzl's birthday? I didn't know that. Thank you. Wow. How appropriate. Yeah. So there was this dramatic idea that a national fund would be created that every Jew would contribute to. And one of the suggestions was the equivalent of a half shekel. Why a half shekel? Because in the Torah, every Jew is supposed to contribute a half shekel to the upkeep of the temple and sanctuary in Jerusalem. And so the delegates of this, this Congress were looking to their ancient roots, just like every other national movement, for a ways to create what would be a Jewish nation. Right? Not just Herzl 
only her, this was not Herzl's strong point. It was the other delegates who were pushing these kinds of ideas. He, was, he, he didn't have this Yiddishkeit or this knowledge of Jewish history or tradition in his bones. He didn't have it. Um, he fulfilled another function. But by assembling this Congress, he also did not think that necessarily, I mentioned this last time, that the, this national homeland needed to be in Palestine. He was just trying to solve what was for him a political and social dilemma, which he had concluded had no solution in Europe. Does make, you follow what I'm saying? So when he went to um, England and uh, some, someone in the British government, forgive me not having these details in mind, proposed that there were large tracts of land available in Uganda, that, which was a colony of Great Britain. It's a shofar. Um, uh, one of its colonies, Uganda, that they might be able to secure land for the Jews to create an autonomous place, autonomous Jewish society there, Herzl was happy to entertain it until it was shot to shreds immediately by other delegates at one of these congresses. Why? Because they said, our people aren't going to go to Uganda. <laughs> this is the Eastern European delegates. They said, we've been praying for the return to Zion for 2,000 years. Are you nuts? <laughs> Which highlights the difference between the Western European Zionists and the Eastern European Zionists. It would be really the Eastern European Zionists who would drive this car as the years went by. Um, and a, a lot of the shape that we think of, of what took shape as the modern state of Israel, was because it was the Eastern European Zionists who brought their Yiddishkeit, their socialism, their, and their ideas about, the, the, their, their, their combination of not being so far removed from their Jewish origins. Many of them had gone to yeshiva before abandoning religion. Right? They knew their Bible. Uh, and they also, many of them, were very active in Russia at this time. So they were, they were, they were very active. This is the late, this is now at the turn of the 20th century. Very active in the socialist movement and in the communist movement. Yes? Is there any other people in history that decided that they would put all their money together to buy a piece of land where people would never own the land, they would lease the land. I mean, has any other nation been built this way? I think not. Yeah, See, this is why studying all about nationalism is crucial to understand Jewish nationalism. But then, to understand that, I, I used that word before, Jewish nationalism is like a unicorn um, in the history of modern nationalism. Uh, and um, uh, because the Jews had none, Herzl and the World Zionist Congress had none of the tools, resources, and basic um, attributes that they could say, and now we're going to build a nation state. They didn't have land. They didn't have a shared language. 
They didn't have any power, political power. No political power. Everything was done through persuasion, being annoying, um, <laughs> being relentless, uh, and none of that made it a foregone conclusion. When, when we will, as we study in a future class, the history of the Yeshuv and how it develops in Israel, um, they had, sure, there was a World Zionist Congress and a Jewish National Fund. Their budget, I'll look it up again, was like, you know, $100,000 this year. Maybe up to a million one year. They couldn't do, they, they had no money. They were constantly begging. So they had this grand, astonishing idea. One that they would collect standard, basic donations to be a member of the World Zionist Organization. So that meant forming Zionist clubs and organizations all over Europe and America, which started happening fairly quickly, um, though it was still a very modest movement. But all of a sudden, really all of a sudden, this upstart crazy idea was in the di discourse and happening, uh, thanks to Herzl. Um, oh, so I mentioned the Jewish National Fund. Right, so, so that would be the recipient of all of these donations, plus any larger gifts they could receive. Yeah. In Hebrew, it's again, Kayemet. Karen Kayemet L'Israel. Because I remember in school, we had the same box. <laughs> the World Zionist Organization really became a World Zionist Organization. And um, uh, over time, more and more and more Jews started contributing to it. Um, many, many Jews at the outset and for many decades after not only would not contribute to it, not only thought that it was an impossible and crazy idea, but that it was, in fact, endangering the life of the Jews of Europe. Why? Why? Because they, they, were, they wanted to still assimilate and be part of the nation, like be still German, right. and here they were separating themselves. All of a sudden, everyone says you're a fifth column, that's the claim against us, and now you are. Right. How could you be a loyal German and a Zionist? How can you? Now today, and the, men, you know, what, the meaning of Zionism has changed in many ways, but at the time, it's like, that's, how could you do that? And so there were great arguments in the Jewish world and, and disputes about this. And as I've mentioned before, the reform movement was adamantly opposed to Jewish nationalism because the reform movement's explicit program <coughs> was to transform Judaism into a religious faith. And, and, and uh, uh, um, uh, dissect from it, take out from it, anything that might smack of Jewish aspirations to be a separate people or a separate nation. Because the reform movement wanted to show that Jews could still be Jews but be loyal citizens of whatever country they were in. Uh, my, my mother had that. Uh, uh, my mother, who grew up a Reformed Jew in uh, Mobile, Alabama, and other places in the South, had that. And it was, it was a very slow change that happened in her. 
that finally went right. totally changed when she went to Israel. It was a very slow change. Yes? Also, in, in the Ukraine, and previous to that, the Hasidic movement had started. So the Hasidic, the Hasidic movement were separating themselves from the... They weren't assimilating in any way. Uh, yes, but you're in a different century. Well, they have, but by this time, they were already... Okay, so we talked about this last time. And I'm going to repeat this. Hold on a second, please, Nancy. The Hasidic movement, by the middle, by the early to mid-19th century, which had originally been a spiritual revival movement in Eastern Europe that took the Jewish world by storm, had opponents to the Hasidic movement. This was all internal to the Jewish community before the emancipation period. As society started to open up, the Hasidic movement and their opponents, known as the Misnagdim, actually joined forces against modernity. They were, and they became what is known today as the ultra-Orthodox. So that's a different trend. But they were against Zionism. Oh, right, that's okay, what, that's okay. What, that's what I'm like, they were against Zionism. Why were the so as opposed to, thank you, now I understand what you were saying. As opposed to the uh, liberal, liberalizing, assimilating Jewish communities being opposed to Zionism, because they thought it was a danger to their well-being and status in Europe. The ultra-Orthodox were also violently opposed to Zionism. Okay, there's a couple of reasons why. First of all, what I want to get across to you is that this Zionist Congress, the Jews from Eastern Europe and the Jews from Western Europe, were all militantly secular. They were anti-religious. They were leaving that behind. Religion was... For some of them, the opiate of the masses. For others, it was the, the superstitious remnants of a bygone world. They were, religion was on the way out. And so they were a militantly secular national movement. They wanted to take the attributes and aspects of Jewish history and culture with them into this, but not religiously. And so, of course, the ultra-Orthodox viewed them as apostates. They were. Right? They were apostates. There were other reasons why the ultra-Orthodox refused to accept the legitimacy of this movement. And that is because in their non-modern, uh, ahistorical view of history, the redemption would come with a supernatural intervention from a messiah. That was going to be a, some, that, and what was this? This was like, this was, what is this? Herzl was not the messiah. Herzl's not the messiah. <laughs> but I should say, I'll get you in a second, Nancy. I should say that Herzl was viewed with messianic fervor by the people who attached themselves to him. He was a messianic figure, globetrotting with his biblical beard and his, uh, you know, his, so he, Zionism, and this is very important, modern Zionism was a messianic movement. It was going to transform history, just like socialism and communism were messianic movements. These were revolutionary movements. Uh, so, Nancy. So, this really keyed into what, as you were talking about, that it was so secular, 
But on the other hand, um, to what extent was it at all biblical that we've been exiled and we're always turning towards <coughs> Jerusalem? We remember our return to Jerusalem. So that really was mm -hmm. the infractiousness of it because they're like, you know, you're not really the coming of the Messiah to bring us back there. But he, he must have had it someplace in his mind, even though he didn't want to bring... I don't want to characterize it, but the kind of backwards way of the Hasidim and the ultra-Orthodox. That's what it was thought of as backwards, yes. Backwards. He didn't want to bring that with him. Who's he? he? Well, I'm talking about Herzl, like, generally uh -huh. speaking, that it had to have been in their minds that we have been exiled, and it's really, it's time to go back. So in a way... I'm, I'm going to speak about that, yes. Yes, and now I'm getting a little bit ahead, because the war, the Second World War, really brought it to a head, like... We got to get out of this place. We have to have our own place, but have to in a, in a real urgent sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I'll, I'll flag what you said because there's other people who want to say something. Yes, Joan. Listening to this unfolding, it seems to me, as people are resisting this, that Herzl is the only one who's seeing the handwriting on the wall that the Jews are never going to be accepted in these European countries and even the the Jews in Europe are resisting his movement so is he the only voice crying out into the wilderness hey this is never going to happen well I think I said he's not the only voice he was that particular figure who made the voices saying that into a coherent movement first of all but he does represent that so but he's not the only one however hold on hold on um Put yourself in the shoes of a well-educated Jew in Vienna in 1897. It's like, you've got Freud, you've got every scientist, you're 60% of the university population. You're, what are you talking about? We're, we're like at the top of our game. So it's not hard to understand why this analysis might not be accepted. You know, we only understand it in hindsight. And that's why one of those questions that we've always entertained, I'm sure each of us, what would you have done? Yeah. You know, the truth is, I have no idea. I have no, uh, uh, I think that's fair to say, Nancy, that uh, I, I hope I would have been on, my judgment would have been good, but I have no way of self-righteously claiming, oh, if I'd been there, blah, blah, blah. Right, yeah. They felt a part of the society, but they knew they were still separate. Everyone was a part. Everyone, every Jew knew this. Every Jew felt the anti-Semitism. The question was, was it on the ascendance or was it receding into history? That was the question. That was not clear in fin de siècle uh, at the end of the 19th century Europe. It was not at all clear. It would not be clear even in Weimar Germany. It was not 100% clear even when Hitler won 34% of the vote. Um, and so, again, I just want to say it's only with the hindsight of history that we can know this. And uh, uh, I just, it's important to me not to stand in judgment of people who made different decisions. Because um, I have no idea what I would have decided. 
Uh, Carol. Yeah, I, there's a wonderful article about Martin Buber in this, I think it's this week's New Yorker. This week's New Yorker. And, and Martin Buber was, was very involved from, from early on, which I had never known. In Zionism. And, and also, I just want to, <laughs> just want to, again, I still always feel like I have to defend the reform movement. Stephen Wise was very active from the very beginning. In, right. In the, in the Congress. But the reform, Stephen Wise, who was an, you know, probably the most important rabbi of, the, of one of the most important rabbis in America of the 20th century, um, uh, who Car hey, Carol sat on his lap. <laughs> Carol sat on his lap. Oh, when I was five. <laughs> oh, no, I don't mean that. No, no, no. You have to say it now. Now you have to say it. Oh, God. Okay. Um, uh, no movement's monolithic, but it is historically fair to say that nationalism was anti-nationalism, anti-Jewish nationalism was part of the reform movement's program for how to make Judaism a modern phenomenon. And they uh, were very late in the game, uh, getting on the Zionist bandwagon because of that. Uh, so yes, no, there are reform rabbis who deserve incredible credit, especially as leaders of the American Zionist movement, and they were bucking the trend in their own denomination, right? But uh, that didn't stop them. Uh, wh whose other hands are Yes? I was just wondering about Liberia. Wasn't that, didn't American slaves go back to Africa to create a nation? In Liberia. Yeah, like late same time frame or? Uh, no, that was in the 1840s. Before? Yeah, while slavery was going on. It was considered to be one. So if there's a Jewish problem, this was considered to be one of the solutions to the Negro problem. Oh, Send them home. I assumed it was after the war. No, no, no. It was, it was a program in many ways fueled by uh, white people trying to solve their Negro problem. So from the, must have been the North. Yes. Yes, it was a, it, um, but that's an interesting analogy. Uh, yes? I just wanted to give a little bit of my personal experience. Nice with, and loud. With immigration, as far as what you were saying, when do you leave? How when do you, you know leave? You have to leave? I come from Argentina, it's not Nazi Germany, <laughs> but I think we're living through this time now when we see what's going on in this country. I've said to my husband, we've been here for 25 years, 20, almost 28 years actually, and I say, when is time to leave? You know, when's it time to leave? Time to leave? Speaking as an immigrant. Speaking as an immigrant, I look at what's going on and I'm scared, but when we left Argentina, the whole generation was talking about leaving, our generation. Our of parents, Jews? Your generation of Jews? Uh, well, yeah, our friends. Your, Jew the, your Jewish crowd. Jewish crowd. Mm -hmm. Everybody was like, where do we go? Do we go to Canada? Can we get to the US? Some left for Spain. And it wasn't anti-Semitism per se. There were other problems. But what I'm saying is that the previous generation, that's so much harder to leave. When you are settled, when you are about to retire, when you have children in your country that have grandchildren, you don't leave. Right. So we saw it as we were just had just finished our education, my husband and I, and had two young kids, two toddlers, and we looked around and said, if we stay now, we'll never leave. We'll never leave. So it's now or never. Last, last, last train out the station, basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we took it. 
and we had friends who most, everybody stayed behind. Most of them stayed because it's easier to stay. It's hard to see that. You give up so much right. by it's leaving. It's hard to see. So you, you give up so much. about those who stayed because it's so much easier to stay. And not everybody can be an immigrant. That's another thing. It's tough. Mm-hmm. And it's tough in many ways, emotional, financial, culturally, mm-hmm. even if you have the language. I'm just saying because those who don't have the language is even harder. So I can't even imagine my grandparents coming with the Yiddish to Argentina. They didn't even know the foods there. Um, and for us, it was a bit easier because there's a lot of influence from the U.S. and Latin America. But, but the, the, the truth is you don't know when is the time. I mean, no. you take your chances. No. So I'm glad you, yeah, and, and, and. What year? Uh, we came in 1992. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you. So uh, now I want to circle back around. Uh, remind me, Nancy, what you were saying before. Uh, oh, about religion. Yeah, I got it. I got it. I got it. So a militantly secular nationalist movement. But remember, nationalism is a new religion. Okay? It has an ideology, it has its shared myths, it has its shared holidays, it has its heritage, its language. What binds you as a national group? Right? And it's a new organization that was considered to be supplanting religious affiliation as an organizing principle. Make sense? So, Judaism, Judaism's religious history is also... It's history. Judaism's religious myths are also its myths. Judaism's religious heroes, biblical heroes, are also its heroes if you approach it from a secular national point of view. Also, the basic ideology of Judaism, which is that we're in exile because of our sins. That's a religious point of view. But from a nationalist perspective, we're in exile because, and then, huh? We were conquered. We were conquered, we were scattered among the nations, but we have also paid a heavy price in terms of our well-being, our health as a nation, because of our scattered and debased condition. We have a homeland to return to, not because we're religious, because we're a nation. Does that make sense? So Hold on, hold on. I just, I'm addressing, uh, hold on a second. Um, So what the modern Zionist nationalist movement does is it it, it mines the resources of Jewish heritage but reshapes it into a national mythology as opposed to a religious mythology. And I say mythology with a small m. That doesn't mean it's a bunch of hooey. I'm saying it's a foundational stories and understanding of who we are. Okay? So that's how come. Uh, they had all the raw materials, but they weren't going to look at it from a religious perspective anymore. Yes, David? Is, is this what you describe as political Zionism? No, now I'm talking about cultural Zionism. Cultural. And uh, we're going to cultural or spiritual Zionism. Because Herzl's political program was culturally um, vacant. Okay, it wasn't Jewish. It was a nationalist program, but it was, it was a nationalist program for Jews. It wasn't a Jewish 
nationalism. Do you understand? And the West, for the Western Europeans there, that was all they had. And I'm not saying they, and part of their, and I'm, we're going to read something that Max Nordau, one of the most eloquent speakers from Western Europe, who was the first chair of the World Zionist Organization Steering Committee, uh, addressed the Congress and what he said. Um, for the Western European Jew, Nordau would say, we feel everywhere a stranger and nowhere quite at home, even though we've done everything we can. Having our own national aspirations will allow us to walk with our heads high. We suffer, we Western European Jews, from a profound sense of alienation and anomie, almost like, the, as always, the Jews being the precursors of, of society's ills, you know, it's like the, the, the canary in the coal mine. We're, we, we want to be part of the society, and yet somehow we feel apart. I was reading a fascinating analysis that Freud, Freud was responding to this very sense of alienation that the Jews of Vienna had, and that he himself had, in creating his psychoanalytic theory. Uh, fascinating stuff. Um, uh, that it, the critique of modernity is a Jewish critique, because the Jews were the ones who had to critique it, because we were it, we were quintessentially modern, and yet we're not accepted as such. Um, so so the, for the Western Europeans, this is an opportunity to have pride again and to lift our heads up and know who we are. But these Western European pronouncements are much more political and not, aren't about recapturing our cultural history. That, that they, weren't, they weren't connected to it. Um, whereas the Eastern Europeans... So you were saying, David? Well, I, I, I'm beginning to see the distinction that you're making between the political... Right, the, the political and the cultural. Not thinking about going back to Palestine, could be anywhere. Could be anywhere. That didn't matter. That's right, didn't matter to you the... You speak German or French, whatever it is. You're well, we want to create a high-culture, liberal, right. you know, Jewish enclave yeah. where we can be safe and autonomous. But you just have your own... Nation. Our own nation. That's political Zionism. Political Zionism was crucial. And, and, and the terms become obsolete pretty quickly as sort of distinctions, but it, I think they're very helpful for understanding the foundation of the movement. Because political Zionism is what sends Chaim Weizmann to London to lobby uh, uh, the Foreign Office uh, relentlessly for seven, until the Balfour Declaration is declared in 2017, which is the first international recognition of the right of the Jews to a home. That's political Zionism's accomplishment. It enabled him to be accepted in all the capitals because right. he was talking about political. Yes, like that's right. That's right. So political Zionism was crucial. But political Zionism without what essentially Eastern European Judaism contributed to it would have been an empty vessel. And that was, uh, you know, uh, so, so now let's talk about cultural and spiritual Zionism. Um, that's good timing. You want to create a nation state, a new, a new nationality called Jewish. It's not going to be religious, but you have all the building blocks you need, but you have to reformulate them and resuscitate them in order to have a successful new national mythology. So, language. 
First of all, we discussed this at the end of last class. There was a big debate. The Western Europeans were saying French and German, of course, high culture. Many Eastern European Jews were saying Yiddish. It's the Mamalush. It's our language. It's our, it's our language of daily discourse. And then there were these, these crazy people who said it has to be Hebrew. Hebrew had not been a spoken language since the, since the Babylonian exile. It had only been a literary language and a language of prayer and study. It, it had not been a language of daily discourse. And yet, um, uh, the, the, the Eastern European Zionists felt that Hebrew had to be revived. There was one man in particular, who many of you have heard his name, his name was Eliezer ben Yehuda, Eliezer Perlman, but he took a Hebrew name, <laughs> son of Judah, right? As so many other early Zionists then did after him, but he was like the first. He moved to Jerusalem in 1881 from Odessa. Uh, none of those guys were moving. They figured moving, moving, moving was for the poor peasants who couldn't like, survive, who were starving. They'll move there. You know, they, nobody was moving. And he had moved there. He moved to Jerusalem. You can see his house. Uh, where, I stayed there. You stayed there. Right. The, the, the house is in the, right on the street. On, um, it's called Beit Ben Yehuda, Ben Yehuda's house. And it, it's, the house is, is there. And the, in the back is a, like a dorm cultural center. And it's run by uh, German Christians as an interfaith um, a hostel and place for people to meet to discuss peace. Wow. wow. Who knew? That's amazing. Uh, um, so Eliezer ben Yehuda moves, moves to Jerusalem. Who's living in Jerusalem in 1881? It's been a community of ultra-Orthodox people who are supported by donations of charity from around the world. It's a... It's a, it's a Jerusalem is just is a backward place. Um, only recently had the, um, there been any construction outside the walls of the walled city. Uh, ben Yehuda moves outside the walls of the walled city. Um, he's there, and basically a lot of ultra-Orthodox Jews who live off of, 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 of charity and uh, are there to pray. And they were there continuously? They were there continuously for centuries and centuries, yeah. There was a, there was a common trope in, in uh, Jewish literature of the person coming around knocking on the door. He's from Israel. He's collecting alms for the Jews in Israel who are you know, praying for our well-being in the holy city of Jerusalem. <clears throat> but this is all pre-nationalist. This is like, has nothing to do with returning as a free people to our own land. And Eliezer ben Yehuda starts and insists that his wife and children speak Hebrew only. They are, at that point, the only Hebrew-speaking family in the world. <laughs> Literally. Um, and he spends decades writing a new dictionary, coining Hebrew terms. There are thousands of words he needs to create because Hebrew has not been a day-to-day -day spoken language. And his, his theory is that we will never have a living literary tradition if it's not the spoken language of the people. Right? That's what the Yiddishists argue. Uh, if Hebrew cannot become a living language, it will always be a disembodied literary affair. 
And there's no way we're going to create a new nationalism with Hebrew at its center if it doesn't become the daily language of, as he would say, the, the, the criminals and the beggars and the shopkeepers and the, not just the scholars and the intellectuals, right? What year is this? 1881. I guess it's like Latin in that sense today. I mean, no one... No it was like Latin, no yeah. No one speaks Latin. Nope. Yeah. It was like Latin. But it was one of those ancient... People studied Hebrew and Latin in That's university. That's right, and Greek. That's and right. Greek. Right. And the, I, I was just in Greece, and the, there is so much pride in the Greek language mm-hmm. there. It's amazing. It's, I was just in Greece oh, yeah. for Passover. <laughs> there is so much pride in their ancient language. Uh, but they didn't have to revive it. No, <laughs> and they never. And even though Greece was an impoverished, occupied, terribly oppressed place for a long time, the Greek people still lived there, right? And when nationalism took off in the early 19th century, they became a national movement and declared their independence. And uh, I was just so. This was fascinating to me. So I got to visit the Acropolis and the Parthenon, where I had been once when I was passing through there when I was 20 years old, you know, bumming through Europe, but I, I hardly remembered it. So I got to go up to the Acropolis and the Parthenon, and we had a guide, and the guide made clear to us that in the 19th century, after Greek Greece had declared independence, and Hellenophiles, lovers of ancient Greece all over Europe, were plundering Greece for all of the treasures there. And, you know, it was like, you know, we love Greece. Um, The Acropolis had Byzantine, Turkish, Ottoman, um, and uh, Roman, all these layers of buildings climbing up the side of the Acropolis. They took them all out so that they could restore their national myth. Does that make sense? You see the same battle going on in Jerusalem right now. Archaeology is a political, intense political activity in Israel because you want to validate and put in the foreground your national myth. And it cuts both ways. (laughs) Israel's not the only bad guys here. It, or you could say there's no bad guys here. It's like it's a battle for um, established mythic memory, right? And there's intense efforts among the Palestinian Authority to eradicate any traces of Jewish archaeological uh, remains on the Temple Mount. And there's efforts by the Israeli archaeological establishment, which is more science-based, I must say, and not just trying to throw it all out, to establish that the underlying stratum, the deepest stratum of Jerusalem, was originally the kingdom of David, right? And it's a giant battle. Okay, so just so you know, archaeology, everything's political, but... Oh, goodness. So, okay, so Hebrew. I mentioned the Acropolis because it was so fascinating to me since I care as much about how we come to the stories we tell as the stories we tell, right? It's called history and historiography. History is the story we tell. Historiography is why we're telling that story. And that's crucial to me, so that I'm not, so that I am a um, sophisticated consumer as much as possible of history. 
I want to know who wrote it and what their point of view was. Do you understand what I mean? And to see the Acropolis in all its splendor, it's magnificent. And then to know that 150 years ago, it was covered with other buildings, accretions of centuries of other civilizations, um, is amazing to me, to see it in, up close. And is a great comic, physical commentary on what I'm trying to describe to you all, how national myths are created. Okay? Uh, so the Zionists, not better or worse than anybody else, are busy creating a national myth. And we have plenty of material. As we mentioned the last time, Hebrew became ascendant because Yiddish was considered the language of exile, a jargon, a hodgepodge, not a real language. Whereas, of course, the Yiddishists were, you know, the opposite of that. Um, but if you're going to create a new Jew in the Jews' homeland with a revived and resuscitated Hebrew culture, then you had to shed uh, um, all the accretions of exile. It's just like, I can sing it out loud now, it's just like cleaning up the Acropolis. Like, get rid of all that stuff. Let's recapture our, our original grandeur. Right? When we were a free people in our own land, when was that? When was the last time that was? The Maccabees. And so you want heroes. Well, you should know that Hanukkah was a nothing. I mean, it wasn't, this is before Christmas Hanukkah stuff. Hanukkah was a nothing uh, throughout until the modern era. Um, it, it, and it, you may not know this, so I'll just explain this to you. The Hasmonean um, monarchy, the Maccabees, they were called the Hashmonaim, who won this remarkable battle against Antiochus, uh, 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 the Syrian emperor, and restored Jewish sovereignty for the first time in centuries in the year 165 BCE. Established a monarchy, and the Jews, for the first time since the destruction of the first temple, were a free people in our own land. 165 BCE. The Hasmoneans established their own monarchy. Within 50 or 80 years, they were a corrupt, miserable bunch of rulers. And the rabbis of that era hated them. So, but the, the Hasmoneans established a new festival when they recaptured the temple and reestablished the monarchy called Hanukkah. Hanukkah comes from, we can date Hanukkah. We can't date earlier biblical holidays, but we can date Hanukkah to the Hasmonean kingdom declaring this is a new holiday because we have reclaimed our national sovereignty. Um, and there's a book called the Book of Maccabees, which is contemporaneous to that, which describes all the military exploits and the heroism of the Maccabees. <coughs> this book, the Book of Maccabees, was never included in the Hebrew Bible. The Jews never studied it. It was only retained in uh, Greek in the apocryphal literature the, of the New Testament. Hanukkah, the rabbis are clear in the Talmud that they do not want to praise the Maccabees or the House of Hasmoneans. 
right? Uh, because they turned into a repressive, corrupt bunch of rulers who started selling the high priesthood to the highest bidder, and even one king declared himself to be high priest. These were all breaches of ancient Israel that were unforgivable for the religious leadership there. So all Hanukkah was, was this story about a miracle that happened with the oil. When you read the book of Maccabees, which is available, there's no mention of oil and miracle. It's all about the battle. But the rabbis ignored all that, the Talmud ignores it all, and the Maccabees are forgotten in Jewish history until the late 19th century. Hey, there's this book called Book of Maccabees, and that's the last time we were sovereign people. And they, the few defeated the many, and the emperor, empire was thrown off, and we reestablished ourselves and rededicated our Jerusalem, and the, we got some heroes here. Hanukkah becomes a historical holiday, remembering Jewish history because of the Zionist rehabilitation and reinvention of what Hanukkah is. Uh, the Talmud, centuries later. Who knows? I don't know. All we have is a few. We don't have the. We, we can't cover the gap between then and then. We don't know. All we know is that Hanukkah lost its uh, its military uh, focus. Um, Two reasons. One, the, one was that that the Hasmoneans became corrupt, and two was the Talmud really came in after Bar Kokhba, and the rabbis right. wanted to warn people against Let me say fighting. something about that. This is another aspect of, uh, of Jewish history that's very important. After the rebellions against Rome in the first and second centuries, this is now a couple hundred years after Maccabees, when Jerusalem was destroyed, when Jewish rebellions were crushed mercilessly, when because of the result of these Jewish rebellions against Rome, Rome expelled the Jews from Judea, destroyed Jerusalem down to the ground, and refused to let Jews enter there. This was uh, the rebellion of someone named Bar Kokhba in 135, the last successful rebellion against Rome, when the Jews managed for three years to wrest autonomy from the Roman Empire, and then were crushed. The rabbis who created who basically created post-exilic Judaism after that were very jaundiced about military rebellions. This only led to destruction. And uh, I can talk a lot about that. But uh, one of the beauties of rabbinic literature and rabbinic teaching is that it thinks that militancy and military might are not the answer, right? But for the Zionists, in the, in the end of the 19th century, a facing military might was going to be precisely the answer. Self, self, uh, self um, what do you call it? Uh, determination. Determination was going to be precisely the answer. 
the age of exile was over. We were going to reclaim our national homeland just like everybody else is doing. And in this way, we will solve the Jewish problem because we will be a nation among nations, a free people in our own land. And so clubs start coming up around Europe called Maccabea clubs, where Jews would go for gymnastics and calisthenics and weightlifting and sports, right? This was the Jews trying to... The, so the, what is the stereotype and the focus of the Jew of exile? Wimpy, bookish, non-physical, specifically not physical, specifically cerebral. In fact, we had survived on our wits and had developed our wits. But the Zionists were saying, now it's time, but we are Luftmensch. Luftmensch means people who are in the air. We have a soul, but we don't have a body. How are we going to participate in the modern world without having a body? Without a body, we have no power. And because of anti-Semitism, we will always be hounded, murdered, and oppressed. We have to reclaim a Jewish body. And that was a body on a personal, individual level. And that was a body on a collective, national level. <coughs> so on a personal level, we were making ourselves into new Jews. On a national level, we were reclaiming the body of our homeland. Right? It's all, I'm, I, yeah, okay. So, so when we think of the Maccabees today, and the way we think of the Maccabees, that's a Zionist recreation. Is that bad or good? That's what we do all the time. Here in the United States, Hanukkah's the new Christmas. It's like, that's what we do. We have our, we have, we adapt to changing ideologies, conditions. Uh, that's just what we do, right? So again, I'm not doing this as a, uh, I, I'm trying to steer clear of value judgments and trying to be as descriptive as I can. So, new Jewish heroes. Um, what's the other giant Jewish uh, thing that gets? Masada. Masada, which was the last holdout, and Bar Kokhba, the last holdouts against Roman oppression. And Jews start saying, never again. Even before, you know, we say that about the Holocaust. But it was this idea that we are going to create a new Jew who has a body, who can defend himself. I'll say him, because that's pretty appropriate in this case. Um, and uh, so, um, so we have now heroes. We have a homeland. We have a language. Uh, what else do we need um, to, to make, uh, make a nation state? Oh, goodness, I'm talking past 2 o'clock. I apologize. <laughs> Let's close there, and we'll continue next time.